Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me today's episode is Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street analyst team. This week we're talking about activist investing and some of the blockbuster campaigns that are going on right now. We break down Elliott Management's investment in Salesforce, look at Nelson Peltz's efforts to get on the Disney board, and we pitch three companies we like that may have benefited from the influence of an activist investor. Emery, how are we? Another episode of Stock Club. Just me and you this time. How's all? Another day. Uh, good. It's getting warmer, which is nice. We're getting we're moving away from the darkness. My perpetual your thought. Your what is it? Seasonal depression is just normal depression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're moving out of it. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, did you see? Uh, did you see the tweet from Hindenburg Research? No, the short seller. Yeah. It was yeah, so were, ominous. Yeah, they were like, we've been working on this for two years. Yeah, I, for people who haven't seen it, um, Hindenburg Research, it's a pretty big, it's probably the most famous short seller, is it? Yeah. Uh, they tweeted out uh, yesterday, soon we will release a report on what we strongly suspect to be the largest corporate fraud in history. And I just, I have to ask, where did your mind jump to when you read that tweet first? I thought it was going to be Elon. I thought it was going to be Elon yeah. and it was going to be the debt um, and the the Tesla shares that he's using to to get into Twitter. That's what I thought. Yeah, oh, that's what going, that was going to be. Going private and stuff in this court yeah. case that's happening now. Yeah, it's immediately where my mind jumped to. Um, yeah. yeah, a bit disappointing to see it was uh, some Indian company, Adani. Adani yeah. Group, was it? Yeah, but the guy who owns that, who's the CEO, and they own a bunch of companies in India, he's the richest man in, in India. Yeah, I, I just I didn't get a chance to go through the full report or anything, but it's pretty uh, it's pretty sinister stuff they're getting accused of, anyways. Yeah, the highlights were bad. I mean, the the big one they kept hitting off is they have an awful lot of money stored overseas to try like massive amounts of money to avoid taxes, and I think it's some like a lot of the stuff's questionable in terms of legality and how they've done it. I know that was the big thing, but they they had an awful lot of things going on. So yeah, the the one caveat to all this is that Hindenburg Research profits off these short reports they go short the company and then write a big yeah. uh write a big message on it so there is a little bit of a pinch of salt to be taken with this but yeah it does not look good third richest man in the world not a great look well i'm sure most all the richest men in the world probably have some kind of shady underbelly that could be exposed in a research report <laughs> that's fair enough maybe yeah. that's where you where this podcast goes yeah. just digging dirt <laughs> Um, you ready to get into it, sir? Yeah, let's let's go. It is activist season right now, with 177 activist campaigns announced worldwide last quarter, the most since 2018, kicking off the show with perhaps the biggest name of them all, Elliott Management, which has just announced that it has built a stake in SaaS pioneer Salesforce. Very big name around Wall Street, very big name in most offices, I would say. Mike, you've been taking a look into this one for us. Can you tell us a little bit about Elliott Management? Yeah, Elliott Management's a really interesting company. It's one of the largest, most notable activist investor funds on Wall Street. And it's got 
the kind of reputation and the history of being this corporate raider type, you know, you think Michael Douglas and Wall Street kind of vibe. Um, it's MO, it usually builds a position in a company over time, then it'll announce it with an open letter to the board or whoever else telling them everything they're doing wrong, then it'll try to leverage a board seat and then implement the changes it wants to see on that new business. So many active investors, they're seen as management's worst nightmare. However, depending on the situation, in the short term at least, they can be a shareholder's friend. Um, There is a general feeling that when it comes to active investors, they're very short-term oriented. So if you're a long-term investor, they might not exactly be your friend. Depends on the situation. Um, for some of our listeners, you might remember we talked about Elliot way back when Jack Dorsey was still CEO of Twitter and they kind of wrote a big hit piece on him trying to get him out. Um, they've done a good bit. They're, they're kind of, they've picked a strategy now where they're looking at beating down tech stocks and trying to revive them a small bit. So late last year, it managed to get a seat on Pinterest board. They targeted PayPal recently as well. So there's a pattern there, certainly. Um, and yeah. With fifty-five billion in assets under management, they're they're doing something right. Anyways, uh, there's actually a really interesting backstory behind Elliot's founder and CEO or co-CEO, I think, Paul Singer. So, well, I, I, we should include this in the show notes. Anyways, there's this big long New Yorker article on him, and it's called "The Doomsday Investor," and it goes into kind of all his corporate ratings, corporate ratings and stuff, and he makes. Michael Douglas with the slick back in Wall Street kind of looked like Warren Buffett. It's pretty sinister stuff, but there's so much detail and it's very technical and everything. But there's one story about him where he went heavy into Argentinian bonds and the country defaulted on its debt. And in an attempt to recoup his investment, he actually seized an Argentinian Navy vessel in Ghana. So so that gives you a taste of uh, of who we're dealing with now when they're looking at Salesforce. Yeah, they certainly seem to be kind of bargain bargain hunters. They're 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 looking at what's what's cheap. Um, so let's go ahead and break down the Salesforce situation. What is kind of Elliot looking at them for? Yeah, so Salesforce. So Elliot announced this week uh, they had built a multi billion dollar stake in the company, but it hadn't really given its usual list of demands yet. So Jesse Cohn, Elliot's managing partner, he wrote to Salesforce. He said, Salesforce is one of the preeminent software companies in the world and has followed the company for. Ner- and having followed the company for nearly two decades, we have developed a deep respect for Mark Benioff and what he has built. We were looking forward to working constructively with Salesforce to realize the value befitting a company of its stature. So it doesn't sound as bad as we're going to seize a naval vessel. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Um, apart from that, we don't know too much. The full stake wasn't disclosed. We don't know if it's $2 billion or $20 billion, which will matter because Salesforce is a $150 billion company. Um, you know, if a company is coming in and it owns 1%, that carries a lot less weight than if it owns 10% of the company. But um, but yeah, judging by the opening act, it doesn't seem like Elliot is going to be as aggressive as it usually is. It might be a bit more measured. We have to note here that Elliot isn't the only activist investor targeting the business at the minute. In November, a company called Starboard Value took up a stake in Salesforce as well, and it said its growth and profitability are lagging industry peers. So there's obviously some low-hanging fruit here that our investors are seeing in the company. And just, I wanted to point out a fun fact about Mark Benioff is that he is the second cousin to Game of Thrones showrunner David Benioff. So So all this stress might be a bit of karma for season eight. We're not sure yet. 
that's what I was going to ask. I, every time I used to hear that name Benioff, I was like, I have heard that last name before, yeah. but not in this context. No, he's wow. the two, what they call the two, they're two Daves, aren't they? It's, um, yeah. 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 But sure, they, 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 they screwed up. People say that they screwed up season eight because what ended up happening was they got offered a Star Wars contract with Disney. And so they said, right, we got to get Game of Thrones over with because we have to go make Star Wars. And then they screwed up the eighth season so much they got fired. Yeah. I think HBO wanted off them 10 seasons of 10 episodes each. And they finished with what? 15 episodes in seven, season seven, season eight or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Very poor. I, I won't feel sorry for them losing the Star Wars job, but I think we're getting no. sidetracked. Well, actually, I wanted to get sidetracked one more time, which I was going to ask, what do you think is Salesforce's equivalent of a naval vessel? Would they see Slack? <laughs> is that their? Oh, I don't know. It's a Navy vessel is worth more than Slack at this stage. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe like, isn't there the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco? Maybe yeah. they kind of <laughs> put bailiffs on the doors or something like, take yeah. it over like a pirate ship. Yeah. Okay. Well, you talked a little bit there about how Salesforce has some lag. Why do you think activist investors specifically are targeting Salesforce? What's kind of caught their attention? What in the financials is is drawing them in? Yeah. Um, I think what's happening at Salesforce is maybe indicative of what's happening or what has been happening in the software industry too, uh, as a whole. So on January 31st, 2020, Salesforce, has, Salesforce had 49,000 employees. By October 2022, it had 80,000. So that's a lot of bloat over a short space of time. Um, it's just initiated layoffs uh, to the sum of about 10,000 people and it's reducing its office space as well. But that is still a lot of additions in a short space of time. And especially when the company is going to, into what Benioff's called um, a more measured approach from co customers to their purchasing decisions. Mm -hmm. Add to this, the company spent almost 50 billion quid in the past few years on the acquisitions of Slack, Tableau, and MuleSoft. Add to this, the company's sales and marketing expenses are almost 50% of revenue. This is twice the levels of software giants like Adobe, Adobe and SAP. And as a cherry on top, uh, top, top executives are leaving as well. So co-CEO Brett Taylor and Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield both vacated their positions recently. This is kind of bringing into question how the business is being led from the top. Um, if you just look at the company's guidance for the full year this year, it's guidance for $31 billion in revenue and a 4% operating margin on a gap basis. So that's a lot of money being lost on the way down. Any outside investors are looking to see a huge opportunity there. Or more importantly, how much revenue is not being returned to shareholders in the form of dividends or buybacks. So mm -hmm. that opens the door for Elliot. They're going to come in and kind of ask the hard questions because these questions don't get asked when the stock price is going up. Because yeah. that, again, is a form of capital appreciation for shareholders. But when that goes away, that's when the knives come out, I guess. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think Elliot are going to come in. They're they're not going to do anything too special, but there is a lot of opportunity there to first Salesforce to tighten up, and they're going to reduce costs, improve improve margins, reduce dilution through stock based compensation, which is a big issue, and a lot of people are talking about mm -hmm. in the tech sector at the minute. And then, yeah, I think that should be the main concern. I don't think they have to do anything special. I don't think they have to commandeer any any navy vessels or the Salesforce yeah. Tower, but. There is obviously a lot that can be optimized at Salesforce, and that is, that's why it is attracting these investors. Yeah. And interestingly, actually, this week, Salesforce wasn't the only 
thing capturing Elliot's attention. Uh, there was a big Financial Times article uh, that they had gone hunting somewhere else. Do you want to talk us through that? Mm, this is very interesting. Um, so the company is called, uh, I'm going to pronounce this awfully, Day Nippon Printing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to call it DNP for everyone's sake. And Elliot built about a $300 million stake in the company, which is about 5 or 6%, I think. It makes it the third largest shareholder. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a 150-year-old Japanese company. It's a supplier for both the smartphone and electric car markets. So for smartphones, it produces these metal masks used in OLED screens. And analysts have described that market as an oligopoly. Um, it also produces pouches that hold lithium ion in electric vehicle batteries. And it estimated that the company has a 70% market share here and it sells wow. to the world's largest car makers. So it's very interesting. Uh, with DMP, Elliot taken a much more aggressive strategy than Salesforce. So it's come in, it's demanding more buybacks. It's divesting of its property portfolio and it wants to sell off shares in other Japanese public companies. So this is a very common thing uh, amongst Japanese listed companies. And it's kind of this sprawling uh, conglomerate where they're not really sure where to put their money. And what happens is a lot of these companies hold shares of other public companies. So the Financial Times, which reported on this story, said that 37% of DMPs net assets were made up of stock in other companies. So I think... So I think Elliot's seen a big opportunity there where you can streamline this business very effectively. Um, The one thing I will say is that the chair of the company is an 89-year-old man and his son is the president. So it might be tough to oust them or or to, to kind of persuade them to move in a certain direction. But the kind of the general corporate governance and structure that we're seeing amongst these Japanese companies is why many activist investors are actually looking at that region as a big opportunity. So we see Dan Loeb's Third Point, Oasis Management, and Value Act are all actively running campaigns in the region right now as well. Um, and, and I think why it's such an opportunity is because Japanese stocks for the longest time have been forgotten about and they've kind yeah. of maybe grown to become a bit lethargic, we'll say. Um, so from the finance, same Financial Times report, about half of the companies are trading below their book value and over a third of non-financials sit on a cash, sit on piles of cash that represent more than 20% of their equity. This is probably an after effect from the Japanese asset price bubble in the late 80s, early 90s. So the Nikkei index, which is a Japanese stock market, it took 30 years to recover from its uh, former highs after this bubble popped. And it's actually really interesting. It's, it, it, you, you can look back and like all the record, like art sales and property values and all this happened in Japan at this time that are still mm-hmm. records now because apparently everything was just shooting up in price. It was like tulips back in the 1800s or whatever. It was madness. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting kind of like financial history lesson to go back in the Jap- Japanese asset price bubble. Yeah, I remember like reading about that in school because it was at the time like the 70s and 80s, it was everyone was convinced that Japan was going to be like the second or third largest economy in the world. They were like, "Oh, they're coming. You know, they'll work collaborate with the US. It'll be this whole big deal." And it meant that they had a lot of money to do all this stuff. And interestingly, my high school's foreign language program taught Japanese because the Japanese government paid for it. 
no like way. sponsored the program at our school yeah and even like today my friends who like learn japanese in high school they got to go on sponsored trips to japan our senior year and were like brought around by like the ambassador and stuff like that and they were there for two weeks there you go you're part of the bubble yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're living school. in the bubble <laughs> a little high school in colorado that would yeah. be pointing to that what went wrong was like ah, we started giving money to these guys yeah so it meant we taught spanish and french reasonable and then japanese that's mad yeah crazy there you go okay so moving on then we got some more activist investors it is activist season as we said do we spell that uh s s z n season yeah like the cool kids do no i mean am i showing my age i mean the benefit of a podcast is you don't have to write anything down (laughs) i'm thinking i'm 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 gonna have to make a title for this yeah (laughs) (laughs) anyways activist season Mm. Um, moving on to uh, one activist investor who's trying to shake up the happiest place on earth. Last week, Trian Tri- Capital, Trian, a, fun- yeah. Trian, a fund managed by billionaire Nelson Peltz, began pushing for a board seat at Disney after it bought a $900 million stake in the company beginning in November. Disney doesn't look very likely to play ball with Trian. Um, on Wednesday, it released a scathing slide deck detailing why Pels was wrong to criticize the company and would be a poor fit for the board. Amory, you've been keeping an eye on this. Let's first discuss what triggered Pels to come out of the world work and target Disney of all companies. Yeah, it's um it's it's kind of a funny one. I, I think uh it's it's a lot of like kind of what you just talked about with Salesforce, where when the stock was going up, everyone just kind of ignored everything. And now we've had an issue and people all this attention has come right back. So it seems that specifically the Q4 sell-off that we saw back in November is really what caught Peltz's attention. Um, that's when he initiated a position of $800 million and he's added to that subsequently. That earnings report caused Disney to fall to its lowest point in eight years. And if you go to RestoreTheMagic.com, which is the website that Peltz and Trian set up for this Wait, effort. RestoreTheMagic.com. Ugh, I hate that. Yeah. Sorry, it's interrupt. There you go. go. You're good. No, you're good. Um, <laughs> so they set up this website. Basically, this is like the public front of the campaign, and that's like the con- the number one concern right at the top of the website is talking about the stock's underperformance. They have this like big S and P comparative graph, and a quote that reads: "Despite being one of the most advantaged global consumer entertainment companies, Disney's total shareholder return has materially underperformed the S and P 500." Um, this is combined with the fact that Disney just looks a little bit unsettled from the outside. You know, the return of Bob Iger was not a good look. Iger walked away from the company when it was like very refreshed and had lots of new assets under management. He had worked very hard. He went into retirement and now he has to come back and the whole place is on fire. Like they ousted Bob Chapik like in the middle of the night, like he was a criminal. Um, His big (laughs) endeavor, his big endeavor was streaming. Like he launched Disney plus and on the surface, like it seems to be going well. They're strong subscriber growth. They're catching up with Netflix. But like in the last quarter, we kind of got a look underneath it all and it doesn't seem to be going well they said they won't achieve profitability until 2024 there was a huge drop in average revenue per user there and it is kind of a reminder that you probably don't want to be building like a really expensive streaming service in a recession because all of that debt is going to get more expensive for you to fund this effort um yeah and i think kind of q4 really showed people that yes disney is this big legacy company it's very you know it's been around for 100 years it literally just turned 100 actually um but it still is vulnerable when when push comes to shove, you know, it missed Wall Street expectations on the top and bottom line. And it, it, that was both in its parks and its media segment, which is quite uncommon. Usually one helps to balance out the other. Um, so I think this kind of pandemonium 
is what gave Peltz and Trian their their moment to seize. Um, but he's actually apparently been circling for a while. Last summer, he dined with Chapik in Disneyland Paris, and he had meetings with two other Disney board members to try and sway them to add him to the board. But that didn't go anywhere until November. So it seems that he needed to wait for things to get bad enough that people would listen to him. But he is apparently very consistent, though. The New York Times reported that Peltz or one of his surrogates contacted Disney leadership more than 20 times to inquire about joining the board. So he's definitely in no wonder they made a 16 page slide yeah. deck to tell <laughs> him to deck. go away stop <laughs> yeah. bothering me yeah um okay so what what steps is he proposing for disney to take yeah, so the, the big one right off the bat is securing Disney's leadership future. Everyone knows that Bob Iger is temporary. I think he said he only wants to be in for a maximum of two years. Yeah. He wants to go back to retirement. So obviously they need to do a better job picking his successor. And Peltz wants input on this decision. He wants the future of Disney, interestingly, to maybe move away from Iger. So whilst kind of all this situation was going on, Disney board chair Susan Arnold was replaced. That is like very normal. She is a non-management director and under Disney bylaws, you're only allowed to serve for 15 years. This is her 15th year. So she stepped down and her successor was recently named and it was Nike executive chairman Mark Parker. And he was selected specifically to help the board pick the next Iger, like they said that in a public statement. Um, Pelt is apparently very unsatisfied with this pick. He thinks that Mr. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Parker and the newly returned Mr. Iger are too friendly for Mr. Parker to be truly objective. And Mr. Peltz also thinks Mr. Parker has too many demands on his time and attention, given that he still serves as Nike's executive chairman. That is according to the New York Times. Um, other than that, he has all of his concerns kind of grouped together. And this is taken directly from Trian's presentation, which is, of course, available on that website I mentioned <laughs> Just earlier. one more time. That is restoretemagic.com. Let's yep. make this billionaire a little bit richer. Yeah. So together. He's <laughs> His first grouping is capital allocation, um, which is basically him talking about all the acquisitions. Disney has made an awful lot of acquisitions yeah. in the last five to seven years. They've been big acquisitions, massive ones. You know, they took on Marvel. They took over Star Wars. But the most recent one was they took over Fox, 21st Century Fox. And that was a $52 billion deal. That's an awful lot of money. And since 2018, earnings per share have been cut in half, despite $162 billion being spent on M&A and CapEx. So basically, Pelts is saying... You might have spent a bit too much here. You might have gone cash heavy. Maybe we yeah. need to reel this back in. Maybe That's we need to sell some stuff. Definitely a common uh, trait for activist investors is looking at bad acquisitions and looking to sell them yeah. off, I think. 
Definitely. And then his second grouping is corporate governance, which is basically, he said, listen, Disney, like you have poor shareholder engagement. He talked specifically about the Disney board. He said basically like it was this exclusive club and they were all kind of supporting one another. He says that the leadership has consistently failed on succession planning and many board members who have contributed to like failing decisions in the last couple of years continue to remain in place. And he was like, these people need to go. And interestingly, he hit on the fact that they have very high compensation, the, the upper management. And he feels like there needs to be almost a bit of a culling of those positions and there needs to be a reduction in pay there. And then his final point was corporate strategy and operations. He doesn't like streaming. He thinks that the direct-to-consumer strategy is struggling. He thinks it's flawed. He said that the road to profitability should be faster. And he cites Netflix specifically. He says, despite reaching similar revenues as Netflix and having a significant intellectual property advantage, it is not profitable. And Netflix is. And so, you know, these are the kind of thorns that seem to be bugging him. He also thinks there's a lack of overall cost discipline. And he thinks that there is over-earning in the parks business to subsidize the streaming loss. So he, you know, we've heard criticism in the last year or two from people who go to Disney parks that they've gotten really expensive, that they've cut out a lot of the perks. You know, it used to be that you could get a fast pass. You know, anyone who came into the park was allowed to get two or three fast passes a time. You don't have to pay for those. And the tickets have gotten more expensive. There's more limitations on, you know, if you have a, a, a year-long ticket, if you're a resident, all these type of things. They're just little nitpicky things. And Disney, for a really long time, has always prioritized consumer experience, and it now now seems some of that is taking a backseat to trying to maximize money coming in from the parks. And he feels that it's like that because they're trying to subsidize for this massive money pit that has become Disney Plus. Mm, that's interesting. It was always the parks were always called the cash cow of Disney and yeah. and kind of maybe they're what's the term? Over milking them, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> milking them yeah, dry. Milking them dry yeah. sounds better. Um, okay, so Disney flat out said no to pelts, which is unsurprising considering yeah. he's looking for them all to get a wage cut who are the people responding to him. What were uh, what were their main reservations behind his behind his plans? Um, so they they kind of came out swinging, to be honest. If any everyone should they had to submit this slide deck to the SEC, so you can find it on the SEC website. Everyone should go and have a look at it. It's kind of funny. Um, so basically, right off the bat, they they were talking about in defense of their spending on acquisitions, so Marvel and Star Wars. They said that these have allowed them for the last several years to dominate the box office and generate worthwhile IP for its streaming service. Um, in terms of its stock performance, it stated that under Iger, the company outperformed virtually every other media stock. And a big thing that Disney kicked off about was Peltz lacking specific experience in entertainment and media. The company said Nelson Peltz does not understand Disney's business. He lacks the skills and experience to assist the board in delivering shareholder value in a rapidly shifting media ecosystem, which is interesting because throughout his return to the Magic website, Peltz asserts he is a good fit for Disney's board due to his past activity with P&G, which he said also experienced a considerable sector shift and had bloated upper management. So like that's the comparison he's using. Oh, I've done this before with another massive company, but Disney hates that comparison. They basically said that, you know, Peltz's only foray into entertainment is through his investment and board membership in Madison Square Gardens, which is kind of famously a stock that has not performed very well. And so they were kind of making fun of him for it. And then Peltz publicly fired back saying, Disney is more than a media company. It's a consumer company with a basket full of the greatest brands in the world, which is him trying to justify the comparison to P&G. And he also felt it meant that he was heavily involved in Heinz back in the day. He thinks that like Heinz is similar. Like it's a very famous American brand. Surely I can, you know, this experience is applicable. 
But then the absolute worst of the worst is there's a slide in here where Disney spun Peltz's own words back at him because he did an interview with CNBC last week on uh, Squawk on the Street. And they were basically just like, not in his own admission, he is ill-prepared. So they they wrote out investment thesis, and then they're quoting him directly. When the CNBC anchor asked why Disney, Pelt simply said, why not? Um, on streaming strategy, the CNBC anchor asked, do you buy or sell Hulu? And Pelt said, they have to buy Hulu or they have to get out of the streaming business altogether, which is a bit contrary. And then finally, the, C- <laughs> the anchor asked, you say they're over-earning. What does that mean? And he said, I think the parks, and I'm not an expert here, need more CapEx. So Disney basically said, listen, to your own admission in a public setting, you said you don't know what you're doing. So why do you feel like you have the right to demand a board seat here? So, uh, yeah. That's fair enough. I don't know. A guy comes in, he's telling you all to take pay cuts and he wants to take a job. Yeah. Tell him to go away. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but Peltz, uh, as much as Disney's board would like, he isn't going away. And the public rebuttal seems to reflect some fear, potentially, that Peltz's comments may stroke fear in other Disney shareholders. How do you see this developing over the next few weeks? Yeah, the public angle is something that's really interesting. Um, Peltz is really leaning into it. He gave that interview to CNBC in which he basically said, like, I know a lot of investors and they're all very unhappy. His exact quote was, you know, I'm friends with a lot of Disney shareholders, a lot of them. A lot of the Disney shareholders have voted for me in the past, a lot of the index funds. There aren't a lot of mutual funds left in the company because they don't see a future. So I know many shareholders of Disney. And if there's any shareholder of Disney that's happy with what's going on, they must have shorted the stock. So he's kind of leaning into this thing of like, I know lots of well-connected people and I know a lot of ordinary people who own Disney stock and everybody seems to be unhappy. So I should be able to rile these people up. Um, And that is reiterated on their website where, you know, emboldened, it says, we believe that the current investor sentiment on Disney is low. Um, Disney also probably has the disadvantage of being such a public brand with much of its business being publicly facing it probably means that like a lot of retail investors and normal people own the stock and they feel that they have a greater ability to understand it than maybe a Salesforce or maybe a more complicated company. And so I think that then they feel they have a greater right to be outraged and have a greater right to be like, you know what? Yeah, we should pressure the board to do this. And uh, one thing that Peltz is really hitting off uh, publicly is the fact that Disney suspended its um, dividend, which I would see as an appeal to an everyday investor, you know, a typical mutual or index fund holder. Um, And really, the concern is, is that if Peltz is able to rally these shareholders in an organized manner, he becomes much more threatening to Disney. Disney has an upcoming shareholder vote for its board, and it had to publicly state it recommended its shareholders approve everyone and not, underlined, support the tree and candidate. Um, So it's clear that this message is getting to people, particularly because Peter Sapino of Wolf Research, he actually released a note to his clients last week saying that he felt that these proposals seem reasonable and collaborative. So if a couple more big name investors kind of get on board or funds get on board, he could actually put a bit of weight on Disney. As of right now, he owns less than 2%. So it's not too much. But you know, you you never know. Some obviously some people within the wider industry agree with him, but um, Disney might be able to avoid this. Uh, they had an active in- investor six months ago who basically backed off after they agreed to appoint someone to the board that this investor agreed with. So you know maybe Peltz will do the same, but he seems really committed because they called him last week and offered him instead of a seat on the board, they offered him a view on the board, meaning he'd get to come to meetings, but he doesn't get a vote, and he said no. 
And they also have an issue that he has kind of a friend on the inside, Isaac Perlmutter, who's the chair of Marvel Studios within Disney, who sits on the board, is like a really longtime friend of Pelt's. And people inside have said that he's going to bat for him. So this could become a huge thorn in Disney's side if it keeps going. Yeah, I guess he kind of has a point, too, in that Disney is should be this blue cha- blue chip stock, you know, yeah. and cutting a dividend and losing half its value in the space of a year and a half isn't really what blue chips do. So, yeah, maybe yeah. what was the name of the website again? Restore the Magic? RestoreTheMagic.com. <laughs> Sign up now. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see, though. I think... I think in general, what has happened in the market over the last year and a half will bring out more of these activist investors. But um, moving on then to Mailbag, we have a few subscriber questions come in. They all revolve around Netflix earnings. So the stock caught a lot of people's attention, jumping more than 8% after its release, but it also posted a hefty earnings miss. Anne-Marie, can you explain the discrepancy and maybe recap the quarter overall? Yeah, so earnings per share came in at 12 cents and they were supposed to be about 45. And so I think everyone was like, whoa, how did we have such a massive miss? And yet everyone is delighted on Wall Street. So what ended up happening there is kind of all coming down to the nature of Netflix's international business. It has some euro dominated debt. And as everyone has been talking about this year, the dollar is on the rise, but the euro is now beginning to recover. The dollar is coming back down. So as the euro rises, the debt becomes more expensive. Um, Netflix uses obviously lots of debt to fund its content. It sells debt bonds in both dollars and euros. And then now it's just being slapped with the currency difference, basically. Um, luckily, I really wouldn't see this as being a long-term issue, firstly, because currency markets do seem to be stabilizing. The dollar is falling and the euro is, is going back up, which you know I would say we will probably get to a pre-pandemic place. Um And then really the biggest thing is that in 2021, Netflix stated so long as it was free cash flow positive, it would not be issuing any more debt bonds. So it's not taking on new debt. It's like simply paying the debt it had, paying down the debt it has. So yeah, it shouldn't be that much of an issue. Um, Beyond that- Three billion quid of free cash flow as well, didn't they? Yeah. So- So That that always helps. Three billion in cash. Yeah. So it's most problems. Sure, that'll do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is worth mentioning as well that outside of Netflix's debt and profitability, you can see the impact of a strong dollar. So for Q4, revenue grew 10% on an adjusted um, foreign exchange basis, whereas I think it was only like 4 or 5% not adjusted. So there actually is pretty strong growth there. They're just getting bit by, you know, having having growth in Asia and South America. Um, Also, like I would encourage people to like not be blinded by this like one-off unrealized loss um, because the march to profitability kind of continues for the quarter. Their operating margin came in at 7% that way exceeded forecasts, which were for 4.2%. We love to see that, you know, this is a long time coming where Netflix has got to generate something, you know, if Disney's not generating anything, Netflix has got to try. Um, and then beyond that, it was kind of a big headline quarter for Netflix. Um, Reed Hastings announced he is stepping down um, and he will transition to being an executive chairman of the board. Um, yeah, this is kind of part of a, an extended succession process yeah, yeah and like not, it was a long time coming this wasn't a shock to anyone or anything no he's been there he's been there so long like he's the you know yeah, founding ceo founder, yeah yeah um, so i'd say he's just tired yeah he probably wants to pull a bob Iger and retire but you know yeah, what, they'll call he, him up in two years and he's afraid yeah well executive yeah. chair sounds a lot less busy than ceo i can imagine Yeah. Um, And then Netflix also confirmed that password sharing will come to an end in Q1. So maybe, you know, for 
excited Netflix shareholders keep an eye on average revenue per user. Um, mm. That should maybe be jumping. And then they should, they should really time that to like the password sharing goes the day before the new season of Stranger Things comes out or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. If they were diabolical, they would. Yeah. Or they need to do some or like do it for like Valentine's Day because isn't it a big thing that like lots of people still use their ex's accounts? They could run a whole oh, marketing campaign yeah. around that. I like yeah. that actually. We sent an email. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then finally, for all those patient Netflix investors, um, with the return of positive cash flow, they announced that they expect to return to doing share buybacks at the end of 2023. So yeah, other than the debt, it was it was a pretty good quarter. Good stuff. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, we have a new stock pitch just published in Horizon, and if any of you recognize this company, I'll be very impressed. You might be a bigger finance sicko than me. Uh, to see the most recent pitch and watch Emmett build a growth portfolio to last a decade, you can sign up for Horizon at the link in the show notes. Uh, lovely elevator pitch. So, um, so we have a activist theme going through this whole episode so what company have you been looking at that has gone through an activist campaign um i had kind of two one well we were t- we spoke so much about elliot earlier in the show it was worth mentioning pinterest which as mm. you said in the salesforce thing has now an elliot presence in it we're really early days though so i don't know can we call it a success yet but i was excited to see that because i really like pinterest as yeah, a product i think you've been banging the pinterest on for a while now yeah, I think the product has a really nice appeal, is very easily monetizable, but I just I felt like the company got really sluggish in like 2021 and 2022. It felt like they weren't doing enough to maximize that potential. And so when Elliot came in, it, it seems like that was what they were there to do. So I was quite satisfied with yeah. that. I'm excited to I, see where that goes. I feel like if Elliot comes in, you really have to be just on the ball from there on, yeah. you know what I mean? Or you're out the door. Yeah, and so I like that one, but I... Wanted to talk about another one, which Elliot was also involved in the acquisition of Barnes & Noble, which is a big chain of bookstores in the United States. There's like over 620 locations. Um, and they bought out Barnes & Noble as well as Waterstones in the U.S., Waterstones. Um and it, that has been a really interesting process because essentially they just helped the companies fully reset. They provided a bit of capital, but they also put this guy called James Daunt in charge. And James Daunt, he's a former banker. He owns a chain of independent bookstores in London called Daunt Books. He founded it in the 90s, and he's been very, very successful with that. And so they went and got him and said, hey, can you fix these bookstores? And what's really interesting is he was like, yeah, you need to turn them into a place of personality. You know, bookstores don't do well when they're mass produced. And so he apparently got on a call. This they um, became involved in 2019. In 2020, uh, Daunt apparently like led this big call with managers of stores of Barnes and Nobles in the U.S. and he said, "Take every single book off the shelf, properly inventory, see what's actually working. You know, create interesting nooks, create interesting sections and categories. You know, make your stores unique." And he just kind of told them to get at it. And Barnes and Nobles kind of had a second life. It was really prior to the pandemic dying. It was being eaten alive by Amazon. And, you know, some people really didn't like Barnes and Noble because they said, you're, you know, horrible competition to independent booksellers, you know, people trying to go out and do this on their own. And in this upcoming year, in 2023, they're going to open like 15 new locations, which is shocking in the age of e-commerce that a bookstore could be this successful. So that's been kind of nice to see. It's nice to see Elliott Management kind of turning something around that you hope to survive. I mean, I wouldn't say Elliot is going to be involved all that much longer. It is expected within the coming years or so that they'll probably sell out their position. They own the entirety of Barnes & Noble. So there is a possibility that they could go public. Yeah, I was thinking that would be the kind of selling event of an IPO, yeah. Yeah, and so 
them kind of returning to success, they've become profitable. Waterston's also has become profitable under him. I don't know. It's kind of nice to see. That's the type of, you know, that's a that's a success story. It's always sad when you see an activist investor come in and strip a company for parts yeah. and then they go bankrupt. Like, Yeah, well, that's maybe themed for my no one <laughs> next. Um, so I took a look at a controversial company for Manny and that is Alibaba. Uh, the activist connection here is Ryan Cohen. Do you know Ryan oh, Cohen? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The founder of Chewy turned meme stock king. He was heavily involved in the GameStop saga. But as you were saying, he just got involved in uh, Bed Bath & Beyond before they got, before they declared bankruptcy or before their, have they declared bankruptcy yet? No, but I'm pretty, we're pretty well, sure. Well, they're on the way, but I think he was yeah. asking the company to do buybacks or something ridiculous like so. So yeah, maybe a bit more sinister. Um, but yeah, Alibaba. So again, he's, Ryan Cohen came in there uh, recently. He built up a stake and he's looking for the company to up its buybacks at a time when the stock is undervalued. And I have to agree with him that the stock is undervalued. Most people will be very familiar with Alibaba, tiny Chinese tech giant, a bit like the Amazon of China. It started as an e-commerce platform, but expanded into just about everything else since. Um, the stock has had an interesting journey. So it fell as much as 80% between October 2020 and October 2022. This is a big, huge behemoth, like profitable loads of cash. This isn't like, you know, a SPAC or, or one of those. So um yeah. But actually, since October 2022, it, the stock is up almost 90% in the space of about three months. And a lot of this is to do with the softening of the stringent COVID policy in uh, China. So I am, I, I still don't know where I'm concluding this, this elevator <laughs> pitch on. <Fair. laughs> um, I think it would be an investment for very risk-prone investors. If you have any sort of risk averseness, stay away. Uh, we've seen the effects government overreach has had on the company and especially not just Alibaba, but the region's largest tech companies. But for those kind of among us with strong stomachs and who believe the government may relax its stranglehold on business in the region, shares could definitely be considered undervalued. There is definitely momentum there right now. I think people are deciding that China might be investable again. So yeah, there are too many risks for probably a long-term you know, yep. buy and then forget about it for 10 years. But short term, I'm not sure. I think there could be still some momentum in, in the China trade. So so that's my cool. elevator pitch. Nice. Yeah. You're a bit, yours is a bit more actionable than mine. Mine was, we will wait and see. Oh, mine is don't wait and see on this one because <laughs> it could, it could be it could be privatized tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it for today's show. Closing you out in a good one, I hope. <laughs> uh, remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're in the show, join the show. Make sure to tell your friends about us. Give us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. And that's it. Thanks for joining me today, Anne-Marie. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.